How can we make insurance fair and ethical with AI? This is Benevolent Bots, discussions on a safer, smarter future. Brought to you by Lemonade. Welcome to Benevolent Bots, brought to you by Lemonade, where we're exploring the intricate world of AI and insurance. I'm Tulsi, an AI ethics advisor for Lemonade, and joining me is Daniel Schreiber, Lemonade's CEO. Today, we discuss the complexities of AI regulation. What do regulators need to be thinking about? Why is this so challenging? And how do we actually determine standards for questions like, what is fair? What you'll hear in this episode will hopefully convince you, as it's convinced us, that these challenges are far from solved and that there are a lot of nuances to still be thought through. Joining us to discuss is partner at DLA Piper, Scott Fisher. Scott was formerly the Executive Deputy Superintendent for Insurance at the Department of Financial Services in New York. And prior to that, he was the Deputy General Counsel and then Special Deputy Superintendent at the New York Liquidation Bureau. In our conversation, he shares his take on the role of regulation and regulators and some thoughts on where we expect the future to go. I should note that his views are his own, and he's not speaking on behalf of DLA Piper or any of his clients. Well, welcome, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I want to start with just your your background, because you have this fascinating background, especially as it pertains to this conversation, because you've been on both sides of this conversation, right? You've served both on the regulation side, as well as now working on on behalf of insurance companies. And so one, could you tell me a little bit, just give me a little bit of an overview of your experience. And then also for our listeners who aren't as familiar with how regulated insurance is, could you maybe do a bit of an explainer of how to think about regulation in the context of insurance? Sure. Uh, happy to. So yeah, my resume is kind of interesting for somebody who, you know, went to law school. I I'm a lawyer by training, started in private practice, and always had a really strong, for my family, frankly, a strong government bent. I'm very proud to say my grandfather worked for the New York Insurance Department until he retired. My dad worked for the New York Department of Corrections. So my mom was a teacher. So it's always been something that I was, I guess, sort of in my blood and got an opportunity after working in private practice for a while to work at the New York Insurance. It was then the Insurance Department. And I think Daniel may attest to this, but before you learn anything about insurance, you think, oh my God, it couldn't possibly be more boring. And then you get into it and you're like, wow, this is really interesting. I mean, it's not, it's not sexy, but it's interesting. It's very interesting. And so I was fortunate enough to uh, work at the insurance department. It became DFS in about 2011. And I had some interesting experiences. I got to run what it's the New York Liquidation Bureau. And it's a very ominous sounding title. It's where insurance companies go to die. And in that, I I was responsible for liquidating insolvent insurance companies and also running effectively a claims operation for the guarantee funds for New York. And hopefully your listeners don't know what guarantee funds are because it means they never had insurance from an insolvent company. So I did that and then was really, again, very, very fortunate to then after a stint there, a new superintendent of financial services, Maria Vulo, was appointed and she engaged me, brought me on to run the insurance regulatory arm of DFS. And that's where I met Daniel and and all the folks at Lemonade. And in that capacity, you're really sitting on top of looking at all facets of insurance in the state of New York 
And because it's New York, for actual reasons and perceived reasons, you get to see a lot of international stuff as well. So in any event, it was life, health, and property, property casualty, not so much on the licensing side, but that's something different, and saw it all soup to nuts. So that was sitting there as the regulator in the mindset of, here's what we need. Our job is to both protect consumers and foster the insurance business in the state of New York. And it was really enjoyable. I love working for government as you know my, my sort of resume attests. And then for a number of reasons, decided it was time to make a move back into the private sector and have been practicing law again, doing insurance regulatory work for, I guess, almost four years now. And so exactly as you said, got to see it from both sides. And I think the really interesting, well, there's so many interesting, one really interesting part is and I'm, I'm hopeful we can, you know, I, this will come across today in, in the discussion is there is a significant disconnect, right, between folks on the insurance side, particularly in what is called insure tech. And I don't mean this in a critical or negative way whatsoever. It's just a very different mindset. And what I've been, what I like to think I've been able to do in private practice now is sort of try to bridge that. I don't know if I would call it a chasm, but it's certainly kind of a big gap, right? Between what the regulators expect, what business wants, and quite frankly, a lot of times with, within the insure tech space, you're talking about people who are backed by folks, whether it's VC or private equity, people that are really not in that mindset. And what I frankly like to say, and this is hopefully a, a little bit of a segue, Tulsi, to what you had asked about is... Insurance regulation in the U.S. is unlike, I don't know if it's unlike any other kind of regulations, but it's certainly different. And it's very hands-on. It's very touchy-feely. Although it is rules-based, I think everybody, and again, I don't think this is controversial, everybody in the industry would say the rules are not as hard and fast sometimes as you might think that they are. You mentioned kind of this chasm and this this sort of cognitive dissonance, if you will, between the insure tech mindset and, and maybe the tech mindset broadly and insurance regulation and, and the way that insurance regulation is maybe more involved in the companies and in the space. I guess, Daniel, from your perspective as insure tech, how do you think about regulation and how does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. And Scott was the head of the insurance regulation for the great state of New York while we were seeking our license. So we had that interaction um, all those years ago. And New York has earned a reputation for being one of the most exacting regulators. There are 51 of them across the United States. This is not done at a federal level. And both within the U.S. and internationally, it, it has earned a reputation for being a very rigorous and demanding regulator. So we feel very privileged to have been regulated by the state of New York and continue to have a wonderful relationship with them. The way we think about it is that at a fundamental level, there's actually no conflict. The, the, the tensions that Scott just spoke about do manifest, but at least from our perspective, they're not deep. What I mean by that is insurance regulation, as I perceive it, and Scott can obviously correct me, is really about consumer protection. And it's a consumer protection agency in the sense that it wants to make sure that we are treating our customers right because there's a conflict of interest and we might want to decline claims that we oughtn't and we might want to obfuscate exactly what is covered and what isn't covered. And it's a complex business with not only conflicts of interest, but asymmetry of information. And the consumer is has an asymmetry of power as well. They've given you the premiums. Now they're asking for it back. So you have the power. They don't. 
you understand the policy, they don't, etc. So on the one hand, regulators are protecting against that, trying to neutralize those forces. Um, and on the other hand, they just want to make sure that you have enough money to pay the claims. So we've seen other businesses that go under, and Scott spoke about the liquidation bureau, and it's a testament, I think, to how well the regulation in the US works, that it's a very rare occurrence. And, and most insurance companies are able to pay their bills when they when they need to, are able to pay their claims. And that reason is not the goodness of their heart or that they're responsible citizens necessarily. It's because there are very stringent regulations that require it. Now, I say that at a fundamental level, that's not a conflict because it's certainly the way we perceive our company. We want to do right by our customers. We want to think long-term. We don't want to undertake commitments that we won't have the liquidity to address. And we don't want to make a buck by denying legitimate claims or by obfuscation or confusing customers. So I think at a fundamental level, we're tightly aligned. We move at different paces. We have different definitions of what transparency means. Regulators tend to think of transparency through the prism of a lawyer. And I'm a recovering attorney myself, um, though I've been clean for longer than Scott has. And therefore, you often throw huge disclosures in dense legalese, thinking that you're protecting consumers. And there we have a debate about, does this really serve the consumer? But I think where it gets really interesting is in the emerging area of AI, because that's a place where unlike traditional ways of writing insurance, where there is a, I think, an even, not an even balance of power, but an even level of understanding between traditional insurance companies and traditional regulators, in the field of AI, you break that. And suddenly you're coming along trying to do things that may or may not be ethical and wonderful for the customer. And you're dealing with regulators who struggle because this is not the world of content that they've really been trained in all their careers. Just to follow up, I think that, you know, I wouldn't argue with anything that Daniel said. I think it's exactly right. The interesting thing, and, and as I was preparing for this, I think that was a key sort of, I don't know, theme that developed as I was preparing, which is to say, when it comes to AI, there's a tremendous tension between I don't know if you'd call it old versus new, but it's the way in which the processes work, right? And so what has occurred, because, you know, you know, if you step back farther in time, right, I mean, insurance has been based on science, right? Meaning that and it's low tech, well, it was high tech at the time, but it was lo it's low tech now, right? Actuarial science, you know, and so they are they, the regulators, are very much accustomed to dealing with that, and that's how they feel comfortable, and that's what they're doing. AI is sort of changing all that. And so the tension that gets created is two things. One is the fact that they don't know exactly how it works. And number two, that the framework in which they are supposed to operate, so the laws that are written, are not designed with that in mind. And so I think that that's, while it may feel to those in the insurance community or, or the insure tech or anybody out there that's coming to insurance now, that there's this rigidity or slowness. It's there, but it's also there because it's a function of the way that the system has been built over time. And it's going to take a while. It's going to take a, a lot of effort to move beyond the just basing everything on the current state of actuarial science. Maybe Tulsi, I can add one thing and Scott mm -hmm. would love your thoughts on this, but AI and big data is clearly powerful. And like all powerful things, it can be used for good and for bad. And with great power comes great responsibility and all of that. And there oftentimes is a conservative mindset, which says, well, the familiar is familiar. We're going to stick with that. And therefore, there could be a, a propensity to refuse to allow the kinds of changes that AI encounters. 
But I think from an ethics point of view, while there are dangers with AI, there are ethical advantages to be had as well. So I'll give you a couple of kind of thought starters and we can debate them, Scott. But when you're using actuaries and you're using basically human levels of data and stuff that can be solved with an Excel spreadsheet, you tend to use proxies. So one that's controversial in the insurance space is credit scores. It turns out that credit scores are highly predictive of risk. People who pay their bills on time tend not to leave candles in a dangerous position and therefore they have fewer kitchen fires or they tend to clean their gutters and they have fewer floods. And it, These things go together. There's a cloud of behaviors that travel together and credit scores are predictive of responsible human beings. And that's why the vast majority of regulators allow credit scores as a rating factor for insurance, sometimes a very powerful rating factor. At the same time, credit scores are predictive of skin color. And it's a proxy that proxies not only insurance risks, but other things that we wouldn't want to see weaved into our insurance policies, which is why some regulators like California, I think Massachusetts and others don't allow that. I'll throw in one other, which is gender. Most regulators in the US allow you to price car insurance based on gender. That's a legitimate rating factor. And it makes sense because it is highly predictive, just like the credit score. Men tend to have 10 times as many deadly accidents per mile driven than women. It's a pretty profound difference. So you say, okay, that's great. And like Scott said, using traditional actuarial sciences, that would end the debate. But then you come along and you say, well, one second, if I could use telematics and I could use big data and I can actually, instead of looking at men as a monolithic group and women as a monolithic group, I could shatter those groups and look, treat every human as an individual and say, how are you actually driving? Presumably that would increase fairness a great deal because I wouldn't look at your gender at your proxy, I would look at the fact that some men are better drivers than some women, and therefore I wouldn't tar all men with the same brush and vice versa. So I think that's an example of a place where the traditional methodologies force you, because of the human level of the data that you're dealing with, they force you into proxies. You have to use fairly crude groupings that generate monolithic groups that end up pricing people based on those groups, and will have a high propensity to proxy things that we don't want to use, race, gender, things like that versus getting massive amounts of data that no human could keep on top of, but an AI could. And that then allows you to get closer to looking really at the pricing based on the, the content of the character, if you will, rather than a broad proxy. All true. And there's a lot in what you're talking about, Daniel. I think to go first, let's talk about credit scoring. And so I think credit scores is a great proxy for the discussion. So credit score is... In a lot of instances, so in New York, for example, New York allows for the use of credit scores in setting auto rates, but it does so by law. The inclination was before, well before my time, was that you couldn't use credit scores. Washington, I think, has recently eliminated credit scoring for auto. And the reason is, and this is the same thing, we came back to it while I was at the Department on Use of Education and Occupation in auto rate setting. And the reason that it is suspect or that it's problematic, is that while you have, you're 100% right that it is extraordinarily correlative, and we can actually, I don't know that we talk about it now, but why is it correlative? But it is correlative. There's no way to come up with causation. You're not coming up with causation, and there's not anything that people, you could make things up, but it's very, very difficult to come up with any real causative effect of credit score. So, in New York, for example, we got rid of it as a regulatory matter. The legislature came in and said, no, 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 no. We're going to let you use credit scores. And 
That is, I think, where you move on to. And we, sort of the same thing for education and occupation. We decided we weren't going to you could theoretically use education and occupation or education level attained and occupation as a rating factor if you could, what New York says, if you can sort of show the causative nature of it. And that was very controversial. And it is very controversial. The notion that the regulator is not going to say, well, it's correlative, therefore you can use it. And for a number of reasons, among them is there's a lot of things that could be correlative, Right. Race can be correlative, but we're legally prohibiting the use of that. So just because we haven't gotten to this part of saying education occupation is not permissible, decide we weren't going to allow for that. But I think where I would go with this is that sort of decision, right? And this is why it's, it's tremendous going to be this whole area is going to be tremendously challenging for regulators. And I quite frankly think that we're not, the answer is probably not going to come from the ground up, I think it's going to have to be a more collective decision. The way that credit scoring is, the legislature, again, using the word proxy, right? Using legislature as a proxy for the will of the people or the, the group, they're the ones that decided we're willing to live with this level of discrimination or this type of discrimination. And we're going to do that as a matter of a society. But on a individual basis, we may decide, no, we don't really want to do it because it's not causation involved here. And so one of the challenges that I think is being faced by the regulatory community is when you have the way that they're looking at it right now, or the way that we have looked at it in the past, we, I still say we sometimes looked at it in the past, right, is you look at it on an actuarial basis, and you're able to control the outcomes a little bit, because you're much more in control of the inputs, right? You can't explicitly use race. You can't explicitly use national origin, those, those sorts of things. And so there's going to be a, a concomitant impact on what comes out in the output. With AI, I think that the concern is, and this is why you see, and we've, we've sort of mentioned it a few times, you know, this, this concern about the use of proxies because there's so much data and you don't know, there's a lot of unknowns about it. And so there's no more ability to control control the outputs. And these are the sorts of things where now we're worried about the current state of affairs is focusing on unfair discrimination. And we're able to get our arms around this because we limit what the inputs are. The question for AI is now you're going to limit any of these things. It's now going to shift. And can you decide on what's fair and unfair in discrimination based solely on the outputs? And so you get into the now, it, it, I think I may be jumping the gun here, but you're getting into this question of, of really, what does it mean if you can no longer have any limits on the inputs? Are we going to be focusing on, and the fear is, is that there's going to be unintended consequences, but are we going to be focusing on the outputs, which is, is insurance, is unfair discrimination going to be based on the individual, or is it going to be based, will it be based, will it be impacted by or informed by disparate impact? So that now, because of the tools, you can see what it's going to do to an entire group of people. Is that going to be the standard for unfair discrimination? Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up unfair discrimination or disparate impact, actually, as kind of the direction that this will go. And especially because I feel like a lot of the conversation I've seen still happening in this space around even AI regulation has still been very input-oriented, right? So like, what are the features that the model uses, for example, right? And credit score is a great example because I think, Scott, to your point, it's not causative. 
And also, you know, we know that there's systemic discrimination in the United States that has led credit scores to be problematic for many communities. And so explicitly leaving them out of certain opportunities in ways that are problematic. And so you do have certain features, which you could probably say, like, yes, these are features that are problematic and will affect the model in problematic ways. But I think what you're alluding to also is the fact that if you combine features in ways that we don't even understand, they might proxy an outcome in a way that an individual feature by itself does not, right? So each individual feature you might look at and say, okay, well, this feature looks reasonable under some definition of reasonable, but then what does what does the combination of those features do? But I guess, how do you think about disparate impact? Because I think the problem is, you know, that you can define disparate impact in a bunch of different ways, right? You can define it as you want to see every community have the same premium for insurance, right? That's like, one broad stance you could take on disparate impact. You could also say, well, I want people to have the premium for the losses that they have, right? And that that seems like you're more now measuring based on some notion of an individual's risk or an individual's concern in the space. And I'm sure there are even more definitions. You know, there's been jokes in the in the academic community that there are more than 20 or 30 definitions of fairness. So you can define disparate impact in all kinds of ways. And I guess I'm curious, like when you say disparate impact, what does that mean for you? The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> Honest. So a couple things. One, that is a an incredibly important question. So the regulars right now, I think they're faced with this is a this is a minefield, right? Because there's using now that they're moving to a different paradigm. That could, I mean, you're asking, not you, but the theory, right, that you could now move to individualized risk, right? Well, you just blew up insurance, right? Because that's not insurance anymore. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know what it is, but it's not the whole point of insurance and where it started, frankly, or where it began was this pooling of risk and there's safety in numbers and that sort of thing. And now we're not even talking about that anymore. That's actually an interesting point. I want to stop there for just a second because I think that is, I do want to, highlight that point, because I think that's actually really interesting when you also talk about notions of fairness or discrimination. Can you articulate a little bit more what you mean when you say like this blows up insurance or or individualized risk is different from kind of the notions that we've had in the past? Yeah. So I'm not taking a position on it, but the different, whether it's good or bad, it's that the way that it has worked since the Babylonians, right? (laughs) Or at least certainly since the modern insurance in the, like the 18th century, right? is that whether it's life or property insurance is that by pooling these disparate risks everybody is sort of everybody is susceptible to everybody that owns homeowners is susceptible to having their house burned down but the idea was that you that they weren't all going to burn down at the same time and so you could have the the amount of premiums and that's where you know insurance started with these mutual societies where people could pool their financial resources in order to take care of individual members of that group because there was this sort of safety in numbers yeah can i i'd love to push back on that a bit please because it is an often heard concern that if you get to individualize risk you're blowing up insurance as we know it but i'd offered an alternative framing which is that you're still pooling Insurance is about pooling and it will remain about pooling. And that goes back, as you say, to time immemorial. The difference is what are the rates that we take from people to pay into the pool? And what we would like to get to under the traditional definition of fairness is that people will pay in a rate, a premium that is commensurate with the risk that they are introducing into the pool as well. 
So I have a home, you have a home. We're still pooling because we don't actually know which of our homes will will burn. But I may have a different rate to you because I'm living in a fire hazard area and you're not. And we could get incredibly precise and individualized and talk about my home with all the big data in the world and get to a much higher sense of what is my risk. But we would still be pooling. If you think about it, when you go into a casino and you put it all on black or whatever it is, you don't know if it's going to come up black, but you know to a certainty what the risk is or what the odds are. So I don't think that being able to calculate with precision what the odds are stops us pooling. What it just allows us to do is to get to a fairer outcome where people are paying into the pool a rate commensurate with the risk that they're introducing into the pool, rather than that we stop pooling because we're individualized risks. Yeah, a fair point. I guess the question, if you could get that level of clarity, could you, could it be ever be affordable for the person that is closest to 100? And if it is, and how do you get the person for whom it is closest to zero to participate in the pool? Right. If I have that kind of data and albeit, I guess the individual doesn't know that, but let's posit where you you had a world where this information was available. If you you did know where you sat on that spectrum, you're going to adversely select, call it 50% uh, to make up a number, right? At the 50th percentile, everyone's going to leave and you're adversely selecting against the bottom 50th percentile. So a beauty of the, and I'll throw it back at you, at the veil of ignorance, right? is that we all don't know where we sit in that pool, or at least most of us don't know. Some of us have a better idea of how fast we drive and, and that sort of thing. But that notion is, is that as we get more granular, the ability for adverse selection pops up, the ability for diminishing you know, the pool pops up, and it can become more challenging to get that economy, that scale, to expand the base and to allow for the widest level of coverage, and meaning the more affordable rates for the people in the, the bottom 50th percentile. Yeah. So let me take up that challenge because I think you're touching on a crucially important point, which the industry hasn't solved. I'm not sure that the problem becomes adverse selection, but we do have a serious problem of fairness. So I think you made two points. One, I agree with one less so. I would argue that if we got to a theoretical endpoint where we could price everybody in a rate that is precisely commensurate with the risk that they introduce, adverse selection would die an instant death because you'd have nowhere else to go. You're being charged at a rate that is fair given the risk that you're introducing into the pool. And therefore, don't go elsewhere because what we've really done is we've killed the cross-subsidy that is implicit in insurance. Right. So the fact that our pricing today is fuzzy means that we can't really price with precision and therefore we're charging me a little bit too little and you a little bit too much and therefore... The thing works out. But in a sense, we're we're solving the bigger problem that I think you're touching on by just not being very good at pricing. Mm-hmm. So the second problem that you touched on is what about people who, through no fault of their own, represent a massive risk? So on homeowners insurance, somebody's born into a traditionally disadvantaged community with policing rates that are inadequate and buildings that are poorly maintained, and you charge them a rate fully commensurate with with that, and you're pricing insurance at such a point that they can't get it. Or you do health insurance, but you know what happens to the baby born with a congenital heart defect? There is no rate commensurate with that. You'd have to charge them just for the treatment they couldn't get. The social benefits of insurance would die as well. Mm-hmm. So that problem, I think, becomes a, a real one. The only thing I would put back to you is I don't 
think we solve that by just ensuring that insurance companies are not very good at pricing. I'd love to see us introduce a formal methodology for cross-subsidy rather than just assuming that fuzzy pricing will afford some version of of cross-subsidy, if that makes sense. I completely agree. And I will cite back to you the concept in the article that, that I saw that you had written, which is couldn't agree more. The issue with the challenge there is that's a really conscious decision that the society is going to take that this is how we're going to do it, right? Society being the... Be, I mean, this is legislative. This is this is like we as a society, I mean, I'll take the United States as, as an example, right? I mean, we have, so we, we have sort of decided as a society that we're going to attempt to address health care inequity on a societal scale. That's Medicaid, right? And we made that decision in 50 plus years ago, 64, 65, made that decision, 68, whatever, made that decision. And as will come as no shock to anybody listening, it's not exactly a, a resolved debate at this moment. But I think that that's the, the idea. If you look at, if you're saying, well, and this is a little bit beyond or a, a lot beyond where we are with regulatory regime, but that would be a goal to get to where you say, look, we can actually, we can use AI, big data, and insurance to develop this more perfect union, to develop our, um, create the, use it to, in a, in a more, perhaps cheaper, perhaps more efficient way of improving our social safety net. I think it absolutely can be done. And to come back to, I think, Tulsi, where we started, and you were asking me, what's the view from the, the regulators, right? That is way beyond their pay grade, right? And so where I think we are is, is we are, we as on the business side, on the company side, right? Folks like Daniel and, and your cohort, people who are trying to push more towards that by using these tools that are going to get us closer and closer to doing these things getting closer and closer to pricing risk much more accurately is going to make these questions come up more and more. And you get the regulators who are in between saying, well, I'm not able to go above beyond this. And for all the listeners, I'm gesticulating wildly with my hands, but you know, <laughs> the, we're not, we're not allowed to go above that. And so we're stuck in the middle. And I think what you have seen and what you will see is they are in a lot of ways doing the best that they can. They're a little bit playing for time, but they're engaged in the process. And the one thing I did want to talk about, because to get a little further, uh, Tulsi, you had asked this question about, and I think because in order to answer some of these questions, you have to come up with the answer to the question that Tulsi, you raised, which is what are we talking about when we say unfair? What are we talking about when we say unfairly discriminatory, right? And I will, hats off, I don't know if anybody will agree with it or not, but the folks in Colorado the legislature there has decided, has made an effort. And I feel really badly for my friend, Mike Conway, who's the commissioner there, who's sort of tasked with dealing with this, but they passed a law and they actually tried to define unfair discrimination, right? Or unfairly discriminatory. And I won't read the whole thing, but it, it talks about, or it, it alludes to including or using consumer or information sources that have a, this is a quote, a correlation to race, color, national or ethnic origin, religion, sex, sexual orientation, disability, gender identity, or gender expression, and that results in a disproportionately negative outcome for such classification or classifications 
which negative outcome exceeds the reasonable correlation to the underlying insurance practice, including losses and costs for underwriting. Now, if anybody can actually understand what that says, you get the prize. But the point is, is <laughs> as the, the data, the ability, the computing power pushes these questions, right? You're getting very imperfect. You're going to continue to get very imperfect responses to it. But there are folks out there that are going to try. And I think that what we as consumers, as business people, as participants in the market have a right to expect and should expect and should advocate for from our regulators and our legislatures is that they are going to grapple with this, right? And I think what my hope would be is that in the next, in the coming years, is that the regulators are going to make the real effort to put some, give some expectations or create the reasonable expectations. Put some substance. Some substance. And again, not faulting them because I really feel like there's not a good answer that anybody has. I mean, Tulsi, you, you said you're in this area and you've got academics with 20 different definitions of this stuff. So it's, it's a really tough thing to do, but what they need to be, I think need to be focused on, I think you will see, you know, as you, you know, go around the country, go to the NAIC meetings, National Association of Insurance Commissioners is grappling with this. But I, I think that what we all, again, and really as consumers of insurance, because we all, we all have insurance, right? Is that they push forward and try to set some guidelines for what they think is appropriate and what is not appropriate with the recognition that there are going to be unintended consequences. There is going to be imperfection here and not be afraid of that imperfection because frankly, as Daniel, you pointed out, it's already there. I mean, it's just that it's legal. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody would argue that the actuarial science that we have today, as good as it is, yeah, it clearly embeds biases. It clearly embeds inequities. So not be afraid, not for the regulators to not be afraid of, I don't want to say breaking a few eggs, but to come out and say, this is what we think unfairness looks like. And therefore give the businesses, give the AI experts the opportunity to say, okay, great. We understand what you're talking about now. Let us try to work within that construct. Cause right now we're going to do what we're going to do and we have no guardrails. And so you're making it a little tough on us. And that's frankly what the regulars have been doing for the past several years. And I will tell you, you know, having been a part of it, which is New York has done this. Other states have done it where you go out and you say, we like AI. We're glad. We think it can be a real positive. But you insurance companies, you need to make sure that you're not doing it unfairly discriminatory. We're not going to tell you what that means, but we're just going to tell you you can't do it unfairly discriminatory. And I would commend to your reading. I mean, while I was there, we put out this, I think while I was there, maybe I was I had left, but on accelerated underwriting. And there was a circular letter about the use of external data sources and accelerated underwriting for life insurance. And I was looking at it again and it set out and it, it gives the statement. And then the rest of the, of the memo, the rest of the letter focuses on the legal definitions of, you know, protected classes and illegal discrimination. It's like, that wasn't the issue. <laughs> That's not the issue. We all know what that is. What we don't understand is unfair discrimination because and to come all the way back to the beginning, right? We all know and all accept that in insurance, discrimination can be fair. It is fair for a non-smoker female 30 to get a better rate than a smoking man who's in his 50s. It's fair. You know, it's fair that teenage boys have bad auto driving rates than 56-year-old married women. 
it's fair. It's not that discrimination is in and of itself problematic. It's that unfair part of it. And these challenges, I think, have always been there, but are being exacerbated, if you want to say, by the fact that now the data has caught up to the or, or has may surpass the ability for us to conceive of it. Well, I think and that's what's kind of interesting, right, is like I think this notion of I actually think this is where the challenge is going to come is that I'm not actually sure we're all aligned, even probably in the industry or in a particular state or in a particular field on what is fair or unfair, right? Because even to your point about the two drivers, if there is a teenage boy who is driving extremely safely and is very cautious and is really trying to follow the rules of the road, right? That individual could actually be a much, much safer driver than the 56-year-old married woman. And so I think we we do make many assumptions in the way that we build our models. So this is not necessarily a, a not an AI-specific or not-specific problem. It's not also like an actuarial science-specific or not-specific problem of like what we assume when we're defining the criteria of why something is fair or unfair or why something is appropriate or inappropriate, right? And I think this goes back to your point about like causal versus correlative, right? Like what is correlative because of the way that our society works or the way that people are in different life stages or the kinds of environments that they're in. And it feels like there's this very thin tightrope that regulation and probably insurance companies need to straddle between regulation that Colorado is a really good example of what you read out where they are going to have a challenge between do we allow companies to collect demographic data that then could be used in really problematic ways, but otherwise, how do you enforce whether or not there's a negative impact for a particular community if you don't allow people to collect this data? So yeah, I think it's just going to be really interesting to see how companies balance this tightrope. I think it's unquestionably a minefield. I think the fact that I would love it if regulators got comfortable with the uncertainty because we already got it built into the system. So let's just embrace it and, and go forward and do our best. But yeah, the number of unintended consequences of, well, I'll give you this. So one of the awful things and the great things about insurance regulation in the U.S. is it's so diffuse, right? There's 50 states, D.C. and five territories, right? They can be right next to each other, New York and New Jersey or New York and Connecticut, New York and Pennsylvania, right? You can have different rules. What happens if you allow for, I don't even know what, you allow for AI to be used in one respect, one state, but not in the other? What happens if it actually turns out that auto insurance becomes more expensive in the state that allows for this unfettered use of AI? I mean, what then? Or worst case scenario, right? What happens if you get an AI, forget AI, you find out that the use of, of a protected class status right? Of a particular uh, class that the use of that thing was used unintentionally or whatever it was. And it turns out that the rates for that group drop. There's so many different possibilities that could go on. So I think just to sort of throw out there that there's going to be not to belabor the point, but it's already a minefield. It's already problematic, but we've gotten comfortable with where we are. It's going to be about getting legislatures. And now we're reopening these questions. Yeah, exactly. Getting legislatures and therefore regulators comfortable with the fact that they are going to have to look at the questions again on a more granular level and be prepared for and accept the fact that there are going to be unintended consequences and dealing with those. And that's certainly easy for me to say not being in government anymore because I'm not going to get the nasty phone call, but it is going to be a challenge. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if anything, this conversation has brought out is just how much work we still have to do, right? 
both on the government and regulation side in terms of defining these criteria and, and these goals, but then also on the company side in making sure that we live up to those goals, but also that we provide insight and guidance and thought in terms of how the companies think about these problems as well and making sure that it is a community dialogue. I think you brought up a couple of times, right? This has to be a societal conversation and this probably can't be in the hands of just one individual or one organization. So on that note, I know we're running up against time. So thank you, Scott, for all of this conversation and these insights. I think this is such a thorny space, but it is one we're going to, it's, I think, unfortunately or fortunately, one that we're going to have to have answers to, right? Because we are going to have to have regulation. We are going to have to think about how we provide guidance to companies. And so it'll be interesting to see how these questions get addressed by different states over the next few years. Great. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much to Scott Fisher for being on the show today and using his expertise to break down this complicated intersection of legislation, AI, and insurance. Please be sure to subscribe if you haven't already so you never miss an episode. And if you learned something, leave a review and let us know what it was. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Benevolent Bots, exploring the intricate world of AI and insurance, brought to you by Lemonade.